You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 18th day of July, 2010. I'd like to take a moment to ask my listeners, as always, to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, ClimateGate.tv, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, and ReportageBook.com, as well as those websites that help to support podcast, broadcast, syndicate, and otherwise distribute the works of The Corbett Report, including tragedyandhope.com, mediamonarchy.com, radioforall.net, archive.org, cascadiapublicradio.org, and zeropointradio.com with their valuable Z-Pod service, as I know there are some of you out there who have troubles from time to time for whatever reason contacting the Corbett Report servers at corbettreport.com, and the Z-Pod is a backup of sorts for people who are having trouble downloading the podcast through iTunes for whatever reason, and that's why I would like to once again call on my listeners to help support Zero Point Radio at zeropointradio.com as they are having funding difficulties and they will not be able to continue paying the bills after August if they don't receive some funding soon. So I certainly hope that people who do find their service useful will take the time to uh, donate just a small uh, token, that they whatever they can give, really, to help keep zeropointradio.com on the air. Speaking of on the air, I will be on the air tonight if you're listening to this Sunday, July 18th. I will be on the air with LA Talk Radio at latalkradio.com. I'll be on a program called Extract Radio, which will be at 8 p.m. Pacific time for one hour. So if you're listening to this on Sunday the 18th, please tune in and uh, check out latalkradio.com, and I believe we will be on LA Talk Radio Station 2. So please check that out, Extract Radio with the host X. Also this week, I would like to draw my listeners' attention to an excellent video that was sent to me via my YouTube account from a YouTube user called SquidMac, and it's not a new video, and it doesn't deal with new information, but it's an excellent analysis of the faked and doctored photo that Popular Mechanics relied on in their debunking of the World Trade Center 7 uh, demolition. So it's a a very good video, and I, I do suggest that people do spread it around, so thank you again to SquidMac for sending that in. And you, of course, will be able to find that video through the documentation section of today's uh, episode, which, of course, is available from CorbettReport.com. And please click on today's episode under the Episodes tab, and you will find a list to Documentation link, which will take you to a time index sorted link of all of the documents cited in today's episode. And finally, as you will, I'm sure, no doubt notice... 
Today's episode is not only a podcast, but also a vodcast. So once again, please go to youtube.com slash Corbett Report to watch today's episode. And I really think that this episode is a very important one, so I certainly hope that you will take the time to do that and to spread the information around to others as well. And I'm making this available in every way that I possibly can so that it will disseminate out there and hopefully propagate to the masses. So once again, thank you to all of you out there who are supporting the Corbett Report, including those who did take the time to email Max Kaiser the other week to ask him to be on the program. And you will notice that that video also was added to my YouTube account earlier this week. So once again, I would really appreciate if those who did email Max Kaiser before would email him now to let him know that it was appreciated that he came on and just to say thank you. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 18th day of July 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, a series of comments from prominent political operatives and media personalities praising the political utility of large-scale terror attacks are drawing widespread condemnation. In one of the latest examples, former Clinton official and Obama supporter Rob Shapiro was quoted in the Financial Times this week, seemingly hoping for a new spectacular terror event to revive the public's waning belief in the Obama administration. The bottom line here is that Americans don't believe in President Obama's leadership, he was quoted as saying. He has to find some way between now and November of demonstrating that he is a leader who can command confidence and, short of a 9-11 event or an Oklahoma City bombing, I can't think of how he could do that. The comment, which was swiftly and roundly condemned by political commentators, came as no surprise to those who have noted similar rhetoric from those on both the left and the right, who realize that the current political paradigm is constructed on the myth of a pervasive, monolithic, and ruthless terrorist conspiracy. In 2005, a confidential GOP memo was leaked stressing the need for a devastating terror attack to validate the war on terror and unite the country in shock and sorrow. These exact sentiments were echoed in 2007 by Dennis Milligan, who expressed the need for another 9-11 to prove war on terror naysayers wrong in his first interview as Arkansas Republican Party chairman. The idea surfaced again later in 2007 when columnist Stu Bykovsky wrote an op-ed in the Philadelphia Daily News entitled, To Save America, We Need Another 9-11. Bykovsky defended his remarks on Fox News and was aided in that defense by John Gibson. 9-11 united the country, and it remained united, and we were all on the same team for at least a year or two. Stu, but do you mean to say that we are going to be attacked again, we will be united again, that's a sort of inevitability to that, or that in order to achieve this unity, we actually need to suffer? Uh, John, I didn't actually call for an attack on the United States. Uh, I can see where people read it that way, but I didn't actually say it. However, another attack on the United States is inevitable. I believe that, don't you? Yes, I do, actually. And I think it's going to take a lot of dead people to wake America up. Now, since Bill Clinton himself came out recently suggesting that opponents of the Obama administration were likely to perpetrate another OKC-style terror event, it has been the Democrats who have been arguing that another terrorist attack would be good for the country. 
This follows comments earlier this week by CNN's Rick Sanchez calling this week's bombing in Uganda that left 74 people dead helpful to those attempting to reduce global geopolitics to a simplistic paradigm of the U.S. military versus a global terror jihad. Our latest tally of the number who died, 74. 74 innocent people are dead. Joining, uh, joining me now is Gary Bernstein. He's a former CIA officer. But you know what's interesting about this? In a strange way, the event is helpful to the cause of those of us who know uh, how sadistic these fundamental radical Islamic terrorists are. And if it helps get the message out there that these are not the good guys, then so be it. Unsurprisingly, not mentioned by those who express a desire for spectacular bloodshed to further their political objectives are those facts that would tend to complicate the war on terror narrative. Earlier this week, a terrorist attack in Iran left 28 people dead and 167 injured after a suicide bombing at a mosque in the southeastern city of Zahedan. Responsibility for the bombing has been claimed by Jundullah, a Sunni terrorist organization based in Balochistan. The bombing is apparently in response to the capture and execution of their leader, Abdulmalek Rigi, by Iran earlier this year. Before his execution, Rigi confessed to American military support for the Jundullah organization. Abul Malik Rigi says he met the U.S. agents in Pakistan who promised support for carrying out terrorist attacks in Iran. The Americans promised to give us aid. They said they cooperate with us and give me military equipment, arms and machine guns. They told me that in Kyrgyzstan they have a base called Manas near Bishkek and that in a place like this some high-ranking American person could come and we could reach an agreement on making personal contact. The Americans said Iran was going its own way, and they said their problem at the present is Iran. Not Al-Qaeda, not the Taliban, their main problem is Iran. One of the CIA officers said that it was too difficult for them to attack Iran militarily, but they plan to give aid and support to all anti-Iranian groups that have the capability to wage war and create difficulty for the Islamic State. Although ABC News and The New Yorker have both previously reported on the covert CIA support for this terrorist organization, None of the American terror pundits are noting this aspect of the story. In other news this week, the finding that allowed the National Institute of Standards and Technology to withhold data from its World Trade Center 7 collapse simulation has finally been released via whistleblowing site Cryptome.org. The finding was made on July 9, 2009, and reads in part, quote, The disclosure of the information in connection with NIST's investigation of the technical causes of the collapse of the World Trade Center Towers and World Trade Center Building 7 on September 11, 2001, might jeopardize public safety. Therefore, NIST shall not release the information. Although the finding was made last year, the actual finding itself was not available to those who had requested the information, leading many to suspect that it would contain details of exactly how or why the data from NIST's WTC7 collapse simulation would jeopardize public safety, but no such explanation is to be found. Analysts note the finding is especially odd given that NIST itself has claimed that the collapse of WTC7 was an extraordinary event, unprecedented in history, and that they arrived at that conclusion using the computer model whose input and result data they have now classified in the name of public safety. What we found was that uncontrolled building fires similar to those we have seen in other tall buildings caused an extraordinary event. The collapse of World Trade Center 7 was primarily due to fires. 
This is the first time that we are aware of that a building over 17, 15 stories tall has collapsed primarily due to fire. We reached this conclusion by reconstructing the entire building, beam by beam, column by column, connection by connection, into a computer model, a virtual WTC7 building. Many are wondering whether NIST's reluctance to release their data is due to the questionable nature of the science underlying a simulation that many have pointed out as little more than a visual recreation of the initiation of a building collapse, which in itself explains nothing and does not even show the entire progressive collapse of the 47-story building. Here is our structural model showing the building collapsing, which matches quite, quite well with a video of the event. This Freedom of Information Act denial is just the latest in a series of such denials related to 9-11. In 2007, the FBI rejected a request to confirm the exact process by which the four aircraft used on 9-11 were identified. In 2008, U.S. Armed Forces Institute of Pathology rejected a FOI request for records establishing the recovery and identification process for forensic evidence from the Flight 77 and Flight 93 crashes. In 2009, the Secret Service rejected a Freedom of Information request for White House visitor, visitor logs on September 11th and 12th, 2001. Currently, the FBI is arguing before the U.S. District Court of Nevada that 9-11 records are exempt from public disclosure under the Freedom of Information Act. Finally this week, John Williams of the respected ShadowStats.com financial website has revealed the behind-the-scenes politics that prevents cable news networks from reporting bad economic information. In his latest subscriber newsletter, John Williams, who is famous for revealing the real statistics behind government-finessed economic data, relates the story of a recent appearance on a major news network. Aware that Williams delivers financial data devoid of political spin, producers at the network made clear that their job is to make the economy look good. Williams writes, quote, I was advised off-air by the producer that they were operating under a corporate mandate to give the economic news a positive spin, irrespective of how bad it was, end quote. Meanwhile, in the land of reality-based economic reporting, Bilderberg researcher and best-selling author Daniel Eschelin appeared on the Corbett Report earlier this week to talk about the ongoing global economic collapse. You know, what was previously merely the risk of a double-dip recession, as the Bilderbergers themselves have admitted, is fast on its way to becoming a reality. And what's worse, it's happening at the same time as the sovereign debt crisis <clears throat> is gathering steam. You know, the bottom paid for economic recovery, as one of the European Bilderbergers said at the meeting in June in, in uh, sieges in, uh, in Barcelona, is coming to a close. It's time instead to deal with a very sobering new reality. Again, the double-dip is here with all the attendant consequences for stocks, currencies, commodities, people, needless to say, nation-state republics, and uh, the continent of Europe itself. Now, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 138 of The Corbett Report, Geoengineering and You, where we talk to Rosalind Peterson of CaliforniaSkyWatch.com about the toxic engineering of our skies. Welcome, my friends, to episode 138 of The Corbett Report, Geoengineering and You. One of the things that the recent debacle in the Gulf of Mexico has reaffirmed is that human activity can have a very negative impact on the environment. And for human activity, please read 
the activity of heartless, unaccountable, and irresponsible multinationals that are engaging in reckless activities and often doing anything for profit, including subjecting our environment to irreparable harm. And perhaps other good examples of that would be the phosphate fertilizer companies that found a way to take the toxic byproducts of their phosphate fertilizer production process and turn them into a marketable product. Because, of course, if they took their toxic byproduct of their phosphate fertilizer production process and put it directly into the water supply by pumping it into the rivers and estuaries, they would be charged with crimes and they would go to jail for a long time. But if they take that toxic byproduct and sell it to the public water supply systems that then put that into our drinking water supply, we can call it a great public health benefit. And yes, I'm referring to sodium fluoride, which is actually fluorosilicic acid and is absolutely not good for your teeth or anything else and is a horrible toxin. But again, they can put it into the water supply because it's a product, not a toxic chemical. Indeed, well, there are many, many other examples and we see all sorts of things ending up in our environment and in our water supply now, the anti-androgens and the bisphenol A and all of the various other chemicals that are having horrific and deadly and toxic effects on humanity, but all in the name of profit. And of course, there's no eugenics agenda going on here, right? Well, we know better than that, and we know that there is a coordinated agenda going on, and it's something that we've looked at at this podcast time and time again. But don't worry, for all of those who fear that this is getting out of control, science, as always, has an answer. Because the answer to all of this dumping of toxic chemicals into our environment is not to stop dumping toxic chemicals into our environment, but to dump completely different sets of toxic chemicals into the environment that will offset the other toxic chemicals that are already there. That, my friends, is geoengineering. Today on Waves of the Future, a closer look at geoengineering. What is geoengineering? Well, geoengineering is something global, intentional, and unnatural. And we've got some smart fellers figuring out new methods. Let's look at a few. Space mirrors! In this lifelike reenactment, Eric is the sun, and Patrick is the Earth. As Patrick orbits Eric, he receives some of Eric's solar radiation, making Patrick very warm. Let's see what Patrick has up his sleeve. By deploying space mirrors, Patrick deflects some of Eric's warming radiation, making himself comfortably cool. Higher near the Galapagos, this is a scale model of the ocean. What you got there, Patrick? Looks to me like a handful of rusty nuts and bolts. Let's see what happens when you fertilize the ocean with that iron. Algae blooms, drinking in that pesky CO2. Trapping water in Antarctica. With all that glacial meltwater about, it's all soggy socks. But scientists say we can trap that water in Antarctica. Away with soggy socks. Sulfur in the atmosphere. Patrick here has a handful of sulfur dioxide. 
When sulfur dioxide condenses, it reflects the sun's warming radiation back into space. Volcanoes! One proposed method of dispensing sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere is by detonating volcanoes. Well, I'll spare you from the rest of that video, and just as a note to those out in YouTube land, I think the idea of parodying newsreel footage from the 30s was funny once upon a time, but it isn't anymore. But at any rate, suffice it to say that the ideas parodied in that geoengineering clip were, in fact, all things that have been proposed at one time or another. And we can get some of that from various articles around the net, and here's a particularly good one. From CNET News, November 19th, 2007, Geoengineering, Space Mirror over Greenland? Quote, Scientists are starting to consider planet-scale engineering projects to slow the pace of climate change. Anything from causing massive plankton growth in the ocean to putting a giant mirror in space above Greenland to stop ice from melting. These ideas to alter the Earth's environment at large scale, called geoengineering, are increasingly being articulated and seriously evaluated, even though they are likely to be controversial. End quote. And continuing from later on in that article, quote, Some efforts led by commercial companies are already going ahead. Planktos and Klimos are two companies that intend to seed the ocean with iron to stimulate the growth of plankton. During a plankton bloom, or large-scale growth, plankton met metabolize carbon dioxide. End quote. That's right. Scientists are actually, with a straight face, proposing things like dumping iron into the oceans in order to promote algae bloom to save us from the dreaded scourge of global warming and the six-tenths of a degree of Celsius of global warming that has supposedly taken place over the last 130 years. Ah, help us all before it's too late. Yes, well, I think my listeners will be well-situated to parse the idea that global warming is a imminent and man-made threat that must be dealt with. But even aside from that, if it makes you at all uncomfortable to think that some of the ideas being proposed to deal with this problem involve mass geoengineering of the Earth, if that makes you uncomfortable, then you're in good company. Because even the climate gate scientists are concerned about this idea. Dipping into the ClimateGate email archives, we can find this email from October 14th, 2009 from Kevin Trenberth to ClimateGate guru Tom Wigley, and he writes, quote, Hi Tom, how come you do not agree with a statement that says we are nowhere close to knowing where energy is going or whether clouds are changing to make the planet brighter? We are not close to balancing the energy budget. The fact that we cannot account for what is happening in the climate system makes any consideration of geoengineering quite hopeless, as we will never be able to tell if it is successful or not. It is a travesty. End quote. Yes, that's right. There are honest scientists out there that will admit that we are nowhere close to understanding the various processes that are taking place or having an overall energy budget for the, the Earth that would give us the type of information we would need to begin tinkering and tampering with the environment on a large scale. But there are those scientists who will not be so honest, and at least one of the motivations, as always, would probably be money. 
And where do they get the money to go ahead with their crazy Doctor Strange-lovish ideas? Well, how about Bill Gates? Wired.com, January 28th, 2010. Bill Gates funds research into climate hacking. Quote, Bill Gates has sunk at least $4.5 million of his personal wealth into geoengineering research. While it's only a small chunk of his vast personal fortune, it's a sign that the founder of Microsoft thinks we should at least be looking into the controversial practice of intentionally altering the Earth's climate on a global scale. Gates views geoengineering as a way to buy time, but it's not a solution to the problem of climate change, Gates spokesperson John Pinette told Science Insider. Bill views this as an important avenue for research, among many others, including new forms of clean energy. End quote. Well, if that loving eugenicist Bill Gates, who spends so much of his personal fortune funding novel ways of sterilizing people in third world countries and brags about the way vaccines will reduce the population, is behind the idea of geoengineering, then it must be a good thing, right? Indeed. Well, unfortunately, Bill Gates is not alone in thinking this is an idea that should be pursued. In fact, there are people in even more influential positions who argue substantially the same thing. My personal opinion is that we have to keep geoengineering on the table. We have to look at it very carefully because we might get desperate enough to want to use it. The danger, of course, with geoengineering is one I was referring to a moment ago. We don't understand the system well enough to predict its responses in detail, and that means there's always a danger if you try to engineer the system on a large scale that you will do something that has side effects that are worse than the dimension of the problem you're trying to cure with the geoengineering in the first place. Uh, there are a variety of schemes that have been discussed for geoengineering. A classic example is uh, injecting reflecting particles into Earth orbit that would uh, deflect some of the sunlight that would otherwise be warming the Earth and in that way try to produce a cooling effect to offset the heating effect of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. As I'm sure many of my listeners and viewers might be aware, that was John Holdren, the science czar in the Obama administration, in his first interview uh, that was conducted with the AP back in January of 2009, shortly after he had gotten into the office of the science czar for Obama, arguing about the merits and demerits of geoengineering the Earth in order to combat the deadly scourge of climate change. Well, very interesting comments indeed, and they seem quite level-headed. He's just seeing whether or not it's feasible and whether or not it makes any sense to pursue these types of options, and, and maybe there's no good way of doing it at this time. But it's an option that should be kept on the table, and we should look into it. It all seems very reasonable. Well, let, let's look at the mentality of the people who are advocating these types of ideas. So who exactly is John Holdren? Well, let's take a closer look at the video that you just watched. And for those who are listening to the MP3 audio of this from CorbettReport.com, I would once again suggest that you go to YouTube.com slash CorbettReport so you can watch this particular video. And you can note in the upper left-hand corner of the screen, right behind John Holdren on his bookcase, in a position of great pride, uh, being standing out among all the other books on the bookcase, is his own 1977 book, Eco Science. Does that ring a bell for anyone out there? 
Well, hopefully it does, because hopefully the word has gotten out about John Holdren and his 1977 book, Eco-Science, and what it really represents. But for those who don't know what it represents, let's take a closer look. From ZombieTime.com from July of last year, John Holdren, Obama's science czar, says, Forced abortions and mass sterilization needed to save the planet. Let's read some of the quotes from this wonderful text of John Holdren's. Quote, Indeed, it has been concluded that compulsory population control laws, even including laws requiring compulsory abortion, could be sustained under the existing constitution if the population crisis became sufficiently severe to endanger the society. End quote. Or how about this loving quote from page 786 of Ecoscience? Quote, Involuntary fertility control. A program of sterilizing women after their second or third child, despite the relative greater difficulty of the operation than vasectomy, might be easier to implement than trying to sterilize men. The development of a long-term sterilizing capsule that could be implanted under the skin and removed when pregnancy is desired opens additional possibilities for coercive fertility control. The capsule could be implanted at puberty and might be removable with official permission for a limited number of births. End quote. Keeping in mind, of course, that all of this is based on sound science from page 944 of Ecoscience, quote, Humanity cannot afford to muddle through the rest of the 20th century. The risks are too great and the stakes are too high. This may be the last opportunity to choose our own and our descendants' destiny. Failing to choose or making the wrong choices may lead to catastrophe, but it must never be forgotten that the right choices could lead to a much better world. End quote. Yes, that's right. John Holdren and his co-authors Anne and Paul Ehrlich gave much consideration to the horrible and horrific possibility that the earth is becoming just too crowded and by the year 2000 the population would become unsustainable. In the year 2000. Yes, that's right. All of this, of course, is based on that crackpot science of uh, the old form of environmental alarmism, and that was based on Malthusian population scaremongering. And since that has gone by the wayside because the year 2000 came and gone, and we're still able to support ourselves as a species on this planet, well, the latest environmental alarmism is, of course, the man-made climate change scare, which is just another way of corralling people into accepting these types of unbelievable Orwellian ideas of completely controlling the population in every form, right down to forcing abortions. And I'll let you go and read that ZombieTime.com article for yourself in its entirety and look, read all of the other excerpts from this book about the unthinkable ideas about putting sterilizing agents into the water supply in order to take care of this horrific scourge of population growth. Just unbelievable things, but it shows very well the mentality of the people who are willing to consider pumping all sorts of other chemicals into our environment in order to save us from this new scourge and scare of man-made climate change. And again, this is an idea that is quite au courant, and it is very 
popular and being advocated by a great number of people who are in positions to be able to do something about it. And one of them is a professor from my old alma mater, the University of Calgary. And his name is David Keith. I think it's crucial to distinguish these two completely different kinds of things. Carbon removal is inherently expensive. We can disagree about exactly how much, but it's expensive. Putting sulfates in the aerosol is potentially so cheap that costs are irrelevant. In the same sense as when you think about security strategy, that actual cost of nuclear warheads is not a big driver in security strategy. Costs are so cheap that the richest people on the planet could perhaps afford to buy an ice age. That individual small states could act alone. So I'm working with one of the leading uh, uh, contractors of high-altitude aircraft in the U.S., Aurora Flight Sciences. We're in the middle of a contract they have with us looking at the costs of doing this, and the costs are, as we thought, small. These costs you add are, it to the fuel, or would it... No, 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 that doesn't work at all. That's the, in the blogosphere. No, you build, you'd build custom aircraft that would fly at about 65, 75,000 feet. It would put the appropriate sulfur, whatever it is, in the atmosphere. And the costs of doing that really work out to be low enough that costs don't matter. The richest men on the planet could afford to buy an ice age. What a very interesting quote, especially coming from someone who was actually a recipient of that money that we talked about earlier, coming from Bill Gates looking into geoengineering. So this is not quite as theoretical as some would have you believe. And they would have you believe that this is all very theoretical at this stage, the spraying of uh, pollutants into the atmosphere in order to prevent sunlight from getting in, in order to stop global warming. Indeed, well, this, this is posited as something that's not happening at the moment, but perhaps there are signs that there is something going on in our atmosphere. Again from Wired.com, July 16th, 2009, mysterious glowing clouds appear across America's night skies. Quote, Mysterious glowing clouds, previously seen almost exclusively in Earth's polar regions, have appeared in the skies over the United States and Europe over the past several days. Photographers and other skywatchers in Omaha, Paris, Seattle, and other locations have run outside to capture images of what scientists call noctilucent, night-shining clouds. Formed by ice literally at the boundary where the Earth's atmosphere meets space 50 miles up, they shine because they are so high that they remain lit by the sun, even after our star is below the horizon. The clouds might be beautiful, but they could portend global changes caused by global warming. Noctilucent clouds are a fundamentally new phenomenon in the temperate mid-latitude sky, and it's not clear why they've migrated down from the poles, or why over the last 25 years, more of them are appearing in the polar regions too, and shining more brightly. End quote. Or nationalgeographic.com, June 2009. Pictures. New cloud type discovered. Quote. These choppy clouds over Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in an undated picture, could be examples of the first new type of cloud to be recognized since 1951. Or so hopes Gavin Preter Pinney, founder of the Cloud Appreciation Society. The British cloud enthusiast said he began getting photos of dramatic and weird clouds, including the above, in 2005, that he didn't know how to define. A few months ago, he began preparing to propose the odd formations as a new cloud variety to the UN's World Meteorological Organization, which classifies cloud types. End quote. Yes, all some good fun in the name of science, and oh, isn't it interesting all these new cloud formations and varieties that are appearing, and suddenly appearing out of nowhere, and even new cloud varieties that have never before been identified. Is there something going on in the skies that we don't know about? 
Could it be possible? Well, I think the, the uh, informed consensus is that yes, it is possible, and yes, there are things going on in the skies that are not officially admitted to. And we've seen this uh, occurring all around the world, and we've seen so much photographic and videographic evidence of this over the past 10 years that it can now no longer reasonably de be denied that the Earth is being ge geoengineered via persistent jet contrails. And the argument is that this is a new variety of jet contrail that has been taking place since uh, the late 1990s and has appeared all over the world forming quite marvelous and miraculous cloud formations that did not exist several years ago. Well, let's get some more information on this phenomenon, and let's turn to an interview that I conducted earlier this week with Rosalind Peterson of California Skywatch, an organization that was founded back in 2002 when Ms. Peterson, a former USDA crop loss adjuster, began taking a look at the phenomenon of persistent jet contrails and the way they create cloud formations. We talked about this as a potential form of geoengineering, and we talked about the consequences of these persistent jet contrails that are being left in our skies. Well, what I've uncovered is that um, right now, for example, uh, they have what they call geoengineering, which is upper atmospheric modification. And one of the things that's been happening is the U.S. House of Representatives has held three hearings, uh, one in November 5th last year and two this year in February and March, um, to, to have some talking about global geoengineering governance, uh, drawing up plans to put up particles and chemicals or do other atmospheric experiments to reduce the amount of direct sunlight reaching the Earth. And this is ostensibly to cool us down. But the type of chemicals and particles that they're talking about putting in the atmosphere are likely to produce acid rains when they come back down, like sulfur. And they're likely to do other damage to the environment. And when you release the amount of direct sunlight reaching the Earth, you start to reduce photosynthesis. And without photosynthesis, all plant life will lose the energy to grow. Crop production will be reduced. Um, without direct sunlight, you start to have a lack of vitamin D and the, and the associated health effects. And so I began to be concerned that reducing the amount of direct sunlight reaching the earth might not be what we want to do and that it may not cool us down. And that, that Many of the scientists who were recommending this course of action said, well, we don't know what the consequences are, but we would like to do the testing anyway um, so that we can be prepared um, in an emergency or such to put the chemicals up or whatever we need to do to keep us cooler, to combat global warming. And so I took exception to this because I found out through my research that um, uh, the, one of the causes of global warming we could take care of without, we could take care of by reducing our pollutants and some of the impacts of aviation. And we could do it um, very easily and without, um, in other words, having to resort to things that would harm the environment. 
So your, your research tends to indicate that the persistent jet contrails are along the lines of geoengineering in terms of uh, global warming or preventing global warming. Yes. Um, what I don't think that they're there to prevent global warming. Um, persistent jet contrails are actually causing global warming because the NASA studies and the Stanford studies and some others, uh, and there's quite a number of them, also that aviation um, uh, causes global warming, it exacerbates it, and uh, it also changes the climate. And it's responsible for 20% of the warming over Alaska and the Arctic, and they know that it's directly aviation produced. And what happens is when jets fly and they leave these contrails that persist, besides um, toxic jet fuel emissions, you have this man-made cloud that is produced. One man-made cloud can last up for up to 20 hours. It can cover 4,000 kilometers with either man-made clouds or white haze of some kind. And what it does when it produces these man-made clouds, it's it, the combustion process releases water vapor into the atmosphere. Water vapor is greenhouse gas. So therefore, when you see these man-made clouds that change our climate, they're also causing, they're also exacerbating global warming. And one of the things that we could do is to stop the jets from um, flying at heights that per, that produce these man-made clouds. So there are things that we can do almost immediately which would uh, start to reduce the problem. The other thing about man-made clouds, according to NASA studies, is that they're a little different than natural clouds in that they hold in and trap more heat. And when they hold in and they trap more heat, they're more humid, you get this heat trap that traps all of the other pollutants, greenhouse gases and other pollutants, so you actually keep the heat from escaping, both during the night and the day. And in trapping the heat, you warm the earth up. And you concentrate these other pollutants as well. So part of the thing about geoengineering is that we already have this geoengineering experiment. And whenever you see these jets producing the man-made clouds, we're already geoengineering the atmosphere. And so one of the things we should be doing, instead of adding more particles and chemicals to that toxic mix that we already have, we should be finding ways to have the jets run cleaner. We should have them fly at heights where they don't leave trails that persist. Um, and we should start to um, move in that direction very quickly. All right. So, so what can you tell us about the composition of these trails from your research? Um, persistent jet contrails from my research are composed of highly toxic jet fuel emissions, which cause agricultural damage, human health problems like asthma. The EPA reports on subsonic uh, jet fuel emissions is quite clear that uh, there's carcinogens in them, that uh, jet fuel is probably, I would judge from their reports, much more toxic than automobile exhaust, and that they release soot and other particles. So the plume, even though it looks light, is loaded with jet fuel emissions that are highly polluting. The second thing is that when you see that trail, the combustion process of a jet engine 
releases water vapor. And so what happens is you get this uh, greenhouse gas that mixes in with this, and you can have some ice crystals in it or not, depending. But what happens is that this is a highly toxic mix, and its impact on agriculture, human health, um, all these things is quite high. Well, of course, you're familiar with the the idea that this that there was a fundamental change in in jet contrails b- between the mid 1990s and late 1990s, and we've seen reports of things like aluminum oxide and barium showing up in in tests related to what may or may not be in these trails. What what do you say about those reports? Um, we clearly are having spikes in California. Um, because I know because I've gone to the California State Department of Health. And they are the repository of every single drinking water test by every public water source in the state of California dating back to the 1970s. Anyone can get the data free by just uh, requesting it from them. So it's not like a secret. But we went through and we looked at all the data going back from the earliest records all the way up to current records. And we found unusual spiking in barium, aluminum, manganese, magnesium, uh, strontium, boron, and some other chemicals. So we are seeing spikes in those chemicals, and we're seeing direct pH increases in the soil from having aluminum in the soil. Uh, we're seeing aluminum in the whales. Um, so a lot of tests are being conducted in the atmosphere using these chemicals. Now, I can't directly relate them to the jets. However, I can directly relate the chemical releases to when we send up rockets, uh, NASA and the U.S. Air Force send up rockets or the space shuttle and they have these canisters attached and at different heights in the atmosphere they release these canisters and when they're heated um, they create an explosion and they're loaded with trimethyl aluminum or barium and strontium and sulfur hexafluoride and a lot of these greenhouse gases and other chemicals and so these, this type of testing has been ongoing for many, many years, uh, probably going on 30 years at this point. So I can, I do have the evidence and the documents and the research and the studies from that particular, those particular tests that are on, in many cases ongoing. And I have the the documents from last year when the NASA and the U.S. Navy sent up a rocket over the eastern seaboard of the United States, and they created an aluminum um, aluminum oxide dust cloud. And they were doing research about putting up this cloud of dust, and eventually the aluminum oxide will come down. And then they're talking about doing additional tests, putting up more aluminum oxide and other tests into the atmosphere. So we're chemically beginning to put more and more chemicals into the atmosphere to conduct tests. And the problem is that these chemicals are going to come down. They're going to get into our water supply. They're going to get into our soils. They're going to get into the food we eat. They already are showing high levels of aluminum that can't be explained worldwide in whales, tests that they have done. And so part of it is that we have been doing these experiments. Once again, Rosalind Peterson of California Skywatch and the Agriculture Defense Coalition 
And uh, it is very interesting that uh, this is all being proposed by people like David Keith in the name of preventing global warming, when in fact the science shows that this type of technology will likely increase global warming. And one indication of that came from just last month in the independent.co.uk. Radical plan to combat global warming may raise temperatures. Quote, a controversial proposal to create artificial white clouds over the ocean in order to reflect sunlight and counter global warming could make matters worse, scientists have warned. The proposed scheme to create whiter clouds over the oceans by injecting salt spray into the air from a flotilla of sailing ships is one of the more serious proposals of researchers investigating the possibility of geoengineering the climate in order to combat global warming. However, a study into the effects of creating man-made clouds which reflect sunlight and heat back into space has found that the strategy could end up having the opposite effect by interfering with the natural processes that lead to the formation of reflective white clouds over the ocean. End quote. Or, specifically on the persistent jet contrail phenomenon, Popsi.com, August 2004, Air Traffic Blues, NASA links jet contrails to global warming. Now what? Quote, in 2002, using data collected during the three-day grounding of all aircraft in the U.S. after 9-11, scientists discovered that contrails, the wispy white streaks that trail jets, were narrowing the normal day-night temperature cycle in well-trafficked areas. Now, a NASA study indicates that warmed-up nights are outpacing cooled-down days. End quote. Yes, suffice it to say that a lot of the research, and there is much, much more besides, indicates that the seeding of clouds in the upper atmosphere will not reduce global warming as proponents of geoengineering would have you believe, but in fact increase them. And that only goes to show that even if these scientists who propose geoengineering the Earth are being honest, it shows that they are simply incapable of understanding the processes that they're talking about to the extent of even knowing whether what they're proposing will actually raise or lower temperatures and yet we are entrusting them with millions upon millions of dollars of research into this and, presumably, we are actually doing this. And it is Rosalind Peterson's assertion that the contrails that we see up in the atmosphere that are turning into cloud banks, the persistent jet contrails as opposed to normal contrails, which of course disappear after seconds or minutes, uh, these persistent contrails are being left by military aircraft. And perhaps the most disturbing thing about that is that it is not simply happening, happening in the U.S. under the purview of the U.S. military. It is happening all around the world. Interesting, but, but particularly disturbing is the fact that, of course, this is not just taking place in the United States. And I can speak from personal experience here in Japan, seeing persistent jet contrails being laid here that uh, turn into cloud cover um, over the course of a few hours and, and having seen that on several occasions. And of course, we have photographic and videographic evidence of this from all over the world. So that would seem to indicate something of a much, much grander scale than simply the United States government. Um, it does. And I can tell you that um, from pictures and photographs and talking to people around the world, which I've done for many years, um, Italy is one of the worst countries I've ever seen picture-wise and also from the writings and the agricultural crop production problems and things there. Um, but I have seen pictures and photographs of people who have traveled to other countries and all of the NATO countries appear to be involved. And our government appears to be involved in some sort of worldwide project. 
um, because they're showing up everywhere. And um, it's very rare to find a country that isn't either covered in man-made clouds or where you see the jets, um, the jets uh, producing those trails. If commercial airlines are involved, they may be paid to be involved, but they would not be deviating out of their flight paths most of the time because of the cost of fuel and their on-time schedules. The jets we see roving around um, ha- appear to have unlimited uh, fuel, uh, unlimited time. Um, they can run for hours and hours and be refueled and keep on going. And you don't see that with commercial uh, with commercial airplanes. So the the difference in the patterns is quite quite different. I can speak from personal experience here in Japan that yes, the persistent jet contrail phenomenon is occurring here as well. And I did watch with my own two eyes just months ago as plane after plane after plane after plane passed over the school where I was teaching here in western Japan one morning and it went from a perfectly pristine blue sky to a murky cloudy haze and I watched the contrails turning into a cloud bank. It was actually quite disturbing and quite disgusting and I will let you go here to begin pursuing your own research on this subject because as always you are the basis for this uh, information to be spread and you are also the basis for finding the information on this subject that you trust and always verify your sources for yourself. Right now I leave you to begin doing your own research but I will let you know that I have a couple of interviews tentatively scheduled for the upcoming weeks with some very big names in this field of research, so please stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for more on that. But as always, continue finding out this information and spreading it to others around you, as it's the only way that we can overtake the establishment media that will not take a look at these issues. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me, and asking you to join me again next week for episode 139 of the Corbett Report. Know your history, colonial script.